Open your Bibles tonight, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter number 13. 2 Corinthians chapter number 13. And I want to look at just one verse here in this closing chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter number 13. Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, says, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Now, before we get into the heart of the message, it's one particular part where I had intended to spend most of my time, and the more I look at it, why the more they all of the parts blend together and uh, obviously that's the way that it should be but before we get there i want you to notice the first three words finally paul says that was a word that paul used often as i've said on many occasions paul it seems was always thinking of others in his letters, quite frequently, he would mention someone that we've never even heard of before. Mention someone, you know, for the one time, the one time only, but being directed by the Holy Spirit, that person's name was inscribed in the Word of God for all time and eternity. And Paul treasured the relationships he had with the saints of God and here as he closes this letter, he says, finally. I don't know how that strikes you, but it reminds me that everything is coming to an end. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately, and I'd be lying if I said that at times it didn't uh, trouble me in one way. Uh, I don't want to try to explain that. I'm not worried about dying and whether I'm going to heaven or anything like that. But whenever you realize that you've got, uh, you know, fewer years ahead of you than you did behind you, well, you start thinking about that. And that's where Paul is as he writes this letter, finally. But notice the next word. He says, finally, brethren. And there was a special bond between Paul and all of the churches, but I think there was a really special bond between him and, and the church at Corinth here, even though... It was the most carnal of all of the churches. For some reason, Paul was greatly concerned about their welfare. And, uh, you know, I think all of us, whenever we think about our relationship with those that we worship with, those that we work with uh, by way of spiritual ministry, uh, there develops a bond that is even closer than a blood relationship. And uh, so I, I see that as Paul is writing here to this church, knowing, knowing that the end is at hand. And, and, and that brings us to the third word, finally, brethren, he says, farewell. Well, uh, that tells us, you know, there's coming a, coming a day whenever we'll all, all part company. We'll see one another for the very last time. And we never know how, how near that day might be. You know, sometimes we just assume that whenever we leave the building here and go our separate ways that we'll see each other uh, Wednesday night or, you know, next Sunday. But that we'll have the privilege of being together again. But someday 
you know, we're going to meet for the last time here on this earth. And uh, being mindful that that could be a whole lot closer than we think has an influence on the way that we treat other people. It really does. I, I mean, if you knew in your heart when you leave the building, I'll never see that person again, I'll guarantee you it would influence the way that you treat them, the manner in which you speak to them, and so on and so forth. And so here is Paul's final farewell. This is his ending exhortation, his concluding counsel to the church at Corinth. And you can rest assured that what he is about to say is not just a bunch of idle words. He's not just filling up space. He is speaking from his heart about things that are extremely important. Now notice the fourth word, that little word, be. And before we look at the details, I want you to think about that word. Finally, brethren, farewell, and then he says, be. He uses the word, be, three times in this one verse. And, and, and in doing so, it does two things. Number one, it introduces duty. Number two, it implies our possibilities. So he says, be this or that or the other, you know, be. And so that has to do with, an, with, with a duty, a responsibility, an obligation. But it also implies the possibility of that becoming a reality in our life. So it speaks about what we can do and what we ought to do. When I started the message, I said earlier that I really intended to focus on just one short phrase, and that phrase is the words here where he says, be of good comfort. And I was going to spend all of my time talking about that, but then I realized I can't speak about that without preaching about all of these other things that he mentions here. And there's a total of four things that he wants us to be. And the consequences of that, he says, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. So tonight, I want you to consider the four B's in this hive of truth. Four B's, things that we ought to be things that Paul desired for that church that would be good for every church. First of all, he wanted them to be complete. Be complete. He uses the word perfect here. And, you know, some might assume, well, that means sinless perfection, but it actually doesn't mean anything at all. Uh, sinless perfection is a fine goal, but it's not attainable in this life. There's no one other than the Lord Jesus Christ that's ever lived an absolutely sinless life. The word translated perfect here means complete. It means being what we should be. And that can have to do with various stages of our spiritual growth. Being what we should be at any given time. God doesn't expect a brand new Christian to have the maturity of someone that's been saved for 25 or 30 years. So this doesn't have anything to do with sinless perfection, but rather it has everything to do with spiritual maturity. It, it comes from a family of words. It means to be fitted out or to be equipped or complete. It, using the word in the medical sense, and we find that very thing in the Bible, in the medical sense, it has to do with placing, uh, re, uh, setting or placing a limb that's out of joint. 
you know, you pull a joint out of socket and you put it back in, or you break a bone and you, you know, you set it, you line it back up. And this is the word that uh, would be used. In the nautical sense, it means to outfit a ship for a voyage. Get everything ready. Make sure everything's on board. Make sure you're prepared. Get it all done. Be complete. And uh, so you can strike out on the voyage. In a military sense, we find this word used to meaning to equip an army. In the vocational sense, it had to do with mending a net. And so, you know, whenever the, the disciples were out there fishing and had to pull the nets out and clean the nets and mend the nets, that was all a part of it. And you would use that same word there to describe the process of mending the net, making sure that it's complete. In construction, the word would be used in regards to completing a building by putting everything in place. All of the stones go in the proper place and so on and so forth. The problem is, although Paul is wanting them to be complete, and the Bible tells us that we are to be complete, perfect in that regards, there are too many times we're content with being incomplete. We're content with being wherever we are in our Christian life. We settle for immaturity, not realizing evidently that that's a detriment to our spiritual well-being. We deprive ourselves of the blessings of God. We decrease our usefulness in the service of God. And uh, worst of all, we disobey God because the Lord tells us in no uncertain terms that we are to be ever growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter number 5, just to, just to clarify what we're talking about, the writer, I believe is Paul, says in verse 12, for when, for when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of their of use have their senses ex exercised to discern both good and evil. Now notice he's speaking about those that should have already been teachers. But the problem is he says you're still babes. That is exactly the way he described the church at Corinth. They were babes in Christ. Now they're in Christ, they're saved, they're going to heaven, but they are in a prolonged, stagnated state of immaturity in this life. And that's as I said, that's a great hindrance to our being able to be used of God. I mean, if we wanted something done that was especially of a physical nature or something that was going to take maybe years of experience to learn, we certainly wouldn't go over to the nursery or to the first grade, second grade, or third grade and say, well, we need something done, and as long as you'll get in there and really do your best, we're going to turn that job over to you. It just doesn't work that way. And it doesn't work in our Christian life whenever we allow ourselves to get stagnated. That's why for many years I've described backsliding 
as ceasing to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I've never found anything I think describes it better than that because wherever we are in life, what, whatever, whatever stage of life, however high you are on the spiritual totem pole, to, uh, so to speak, even though you excel above all others in the congregation, the very moment that you get to the place that you're satisfied without growing and your life, you hit a plateau and you just stay stuck there in meteorocity, spiritual meteorocity, when you get to that place and you're not growing, you're backslidden. You're backslidden because God's intent is for all of us to grow spiritually as long as we're in this world. So that's why Paul says to this church, he says, I want you to be perfect, that is, be complete. And keep in mind, he's writing to a church that is deeply troubled. This is a church that's basically got a four-way split in the church. They're arguing and bickering over the spiritual gifts, and here they have all of this strife and so forth, and Paul is trying his very best in order to help them solve these problems, and he wants them to understand that the solution to the problem is for them to grow spiritually. Now, he could have just stopped right there. And, you know, I, that would have been a fine closing message. You know, he could have said, look, I've tried the very best I know how. I've taught you. I've tried to be a good example to you. And as I leave this world and we part company, I've, when I never see you again and you reflect back on the time that we've had together, I just pray that you will be complete, be growing spiritually. But notice what he adds to that. The second B, he says, I want you to be comforted. Be comforted. Now, the amazing thing to me about this is that Paul was concerned about their comfort when they are the very ones that had caused him such great comfort. In other words, Paul cared about people that didn't care about him. And believe it or not, there are people that don't care about you. People don't care about me. I mean, as long as you're in this world, you're going to run across people like that. They should, but they don't. They don't really care about you at all. And sometimes they make it obvious. I mean, it becomes crystal clear. They really don't care about me. But the question is, do you care about them? It's real easy for us to get to that place in our life that, you know, we just look at somebody and say, well, you know, they don't care about me. Why should I care about them? Well, there are a lot of reasons why we ought to care whether they do or not. And so here we see Paul caring for people that didn't really care about him. Now, I want you to notice here that, and it's on purpose, it's intentional, where being complete comes before being comforted. Let that sink in for a moment, because whenever we look at that, you know, we see this, it seems like this is backwards. The prompting and the promise, you know, that the God of love and peace, that he'll be with you, all of this seems backwards to me at first thought. But in reality, it couldn't be any other way. Some writer, an old writer of many years ago, I can't remember his name or anything, but I jotted down a statement that he made concerning this. And he said, true comfort comes only as we strive for true holiness. The quickest way to, 
to bring comfort to men is to seek to make them better. To comfort men in sin is devil-like. To comfort men by bringing them out of sin is God-like. He hit the nail on the head, whoever he was. I mean, that's telling it like it is because there's so many times, you know, that that we want to reverse the order. And it's crucial that we get this because it's only as we allow ourselves to be comforted by the reality of God's goodness, the reality of God's grace, that we can actually that we can actually sense and feel His goodness and His grace. I mean, even though it's there, it's, it's as though that we lose touch with it. But we actually feel that when we allow ourselves to be comforted. It can't happen any other way. How do we comfort ourselves? Well, we comfort ourselves in the sense that we allow ourselves to be comforted by God. How many times have we tried to comfort ourselves and leave God out of the picture? You know, we're going through a hard time and we just, I mean, we mull this over in our mind and we grit our teeth and we we put on our thinking cap and we try to think our way through the problem and here we're struggling with some great issue in our life and for some reason or another we just can't ever get to that peaceful place of comfort. And the problem is the only way we comfort ourselves is to allow God to comfort us. The problem is so many times that we're too stubborn to allow that to happen. Talking about immaturity. Those of you that have children can surely identify with this. How many times that you have tried to maybe comfort a child who has just maybe been disappointed with the fact that he couldn't have his favorite dessert or, or he couldn't go somewhere. And, uh, and so you, you have this conflict going on with him and all of a sudden he pitches a fit. I mean, we've had kids, I won't name them, that literally threw themselves in the floor and started bawling, squalling, and beating their head until they turned blue and passed out. And uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, if, if this was broadcast wasn't going out, I might tell who that was. But I'll spare them the embarrassment. But you've known cases like that. And it doesn't make any difference what you do. You know, they don't hear it. They're mad now. They couldn't have that particular dessert. And now you can say, I'll give you the whole pie. Just eat it all. Just shut up. And, and they refuse to receive any comfort in that. They're mad and they want everybody to know it. And they're going to pitch their fit regardless of what anybody does. And so many times in our immaturity... In our spiritual lives, God would and could comfort us, but we still are bent all out of shape over some great disappointment. Sometimes we waste our sorrows even. When we've been chastened to the Lord or we've gone through some experience that God wanted us to profit from. I'm talking about an experience that hurt deeply, an experience that lingered long, something that we would have wanted to avoid and couldn't avoid because God allowed it into our life for some good reason. And rather than gaining the benefit from it, we got bitter about it. And that happens more often than what you think. 
It's real easy for us when everything's going well to sing, Oh, how I love Jesus. Boy, it's another thing when you just walked out of the doctor's office and the doctor's giving you a diagnosis that I, I you know, I've done all I, I know to do. The only way you and I can be comforted is for us to find that comfort in the Lord Himself. But Paul doesn't stop there. He speaks about a third B, and that's to be compatible. Notice he says, be of one mind. I want to make sure you understand this, because this is speaking about harmony and not conformity. We're all different. But by being in harmony with one another, we can complement one another. You know, whenever we think about Adam and Eve and the fact that Eve was designed by the Lord to be his helpmate, to be his helper, uh, a word that describes that would be the word completer. She was to complete him. She was to compliment him. And I don't mean like, oh, sweetie, you did a wonderful job today or something. I mean compliment him, him in the sense of making up for what he is lacking. That's the way a marriage ought to be. You know, both the husband and the wife working together. They're different, but they work together. That's the way the church ought to be. We're all different. We don't have the same abilities, and God doesn't expect out of one of us, you know, what He expects out of somebody else. And so God's not asking us to be carbon copies of one another. Being of the same mind that is being compatible does not mean that we're all to be exactly alike because God made us different for a reason. And uh, the only way we're going to ever be of one mind is what? To have the mind of Christ because He's the focal point. He, he, is, he is the very thing that brings us together. There are going to be many times in whatever the subject is, we could just throw it out there and say, all right, let's all express our views in this regard or, you know, what we prefer and so forth. And I'll guarantee you, you know, it, it, there would be a lot of different views, a lot of different ideas about things. But... For there to be harmony, we have to, we have to blend together, as it were, so that we're all working for the same purposes and we can never allow our preferences to be the standard by which we do things. It's real easy. I, I, I was talking about a situation the other day of a dear, dear friend of mine who uh, was a great pastor and yet over a, over the design of a building, that man got out of the ministry and is still out of the ministry to this day. And it just breaks my heart to think, you know, that, that he couldn't accept the decision of the church in that regards. Because let me tell you, there's nothing in the Scripture that says the building has to be triangular or rectangular or a semicircle or anything else. That's for us to decide. And we could would all say, well, what's your idea? Well, somebody said, I want a square, a rectangle, I, I want a triangle, I, you know, whatever. We all got a different idea, but when it's all said and done, we need to come to agreement and be of one mind in what we're going to do and avoid the decisions that absolutely tear a church apart. So we must have the mind of Christ, as Paul said in Philippians chapter number 2. The mind of Christ. Let him be the focal point. Now, 
Now, the same token, we can't afford to compromise. In other words, for the sake of for the sake of getting along with each other, we can't afford to compromise the standards of right and wrong. We're to stand for what is right, but we're not to let preferences get in the way. And let me tell you, most church splits, most church problems has to do with a couple of different things, either people bickering about their preferences or a clash of personalities. They don't like the other person's personality. Well, so what? I'll bet you there's somebody that doesn't really like your personality, you see. But we don't operate on the basis of, of preferences and the personality and things like that. We come together in the mind of Christ and be led by the Spirit of God. And it's like that old saying, you know, I've mentioned so many times, I, re- I don't care what color you paint the walls in this building. It makes me no difference at all. Now, I've got preferences I kind of like it the way it is, but somebody might want old pukey pale green or something, and if the whole church said, okay, that's what I think we ought to go with that, uh, I'll get a paintbrush and uh, hand it to you. <laughs> I, I, I used to say I'll get on a ladder and help you paint, but I don't do that stuff anymore, but I, I'll help you out, wish you well, buy a gallon of paint. And we look, we've got to do that. That is crucial to the welfare of any church. And so Paul is saying here, I want you to be compatible, be of one mind. But there's another one here. And notice he says here in, in, in regards to these other three things, he says, be calm. Now, he doesn't use those words, but notice what he says, live in peace. I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more the more I hate conflict and I love calm. Life is just too short to live in a state of turmoil. We're all going to say things and do things that are offensive to others. And, uh, you know, whether we intend to or not, that's just, that's just the way it is. But it's too important for us to to live in a state of conflict all of the time. And it's, uh, boy, whenever I was a young preacher, and of course I was, I guess the word would be infatuated with this idea of being a rugged, two-fisted fundamentalist. I mean, I, it was like a buzzsaw. I wanted to fight anything and everything that I could find any justification for, you know. If it just hinted at being wrong, I was going to attack it. And uh, the problem with that, the problem, well, there's a lot of problems with that. But one of the problems that not only gets you off track and where as to where the emphasis ought to be, you end up hurting people instead of helping people. And that makes no sense whatsoever. We are to live at peace with one another. And this word peace means to join. It means one. It means rest. It means quietness. And over in Hebrews chapter 12, he tells us that we are to pursue peace. We're not just to sit back and hope that it comes. It's something that we are to work for, that we are to live in peace as God's people. And of all of the people on earth, Christians above everybody else ought to be able to live together in peace. Whenever somebody attends church, they ought to find a little bit of heaven on earth. And sadly, so many times they find themselves in a war zone, a battle raging. And uh, 
so many people, they want happiness, but they don't want to do what's necessary to make it happen. And if you need any motivation, uh, consider the consequences of these four B's that we've talked about. Notice, putting all of this together, doing what we're commanded to do. Notice, and this ought to get your attention, Paul says, and, conjunction there, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. That speaks about God's person. It speaks about God's presence. Now, as I said this morning, naturally, God's everywhere. The presence of God is everywhere. So what what does Paul mean when he says, "And, and the God of love and peace shall be with you? Well, in one sense, somebody could say, well, you know, that could be said of the worst sinner in the world. God is with them. That is, you know, that God is dwelling wherever it is that they live. But it's only under certain conditions that we actually experience and enjoy communion with God. And that's, this is what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the church's relationship with God Himself and God being with them. We think about Moses, for example, in the you know, think about the great task that God set before him to take the people up out of Egypt and through the wilderness into the promised land. And we think about Joshua who inherited that responsibility at the, at the very end of Moses' life. And in each instance, there was the assurance of God's presence. That was the motivating factor that wherever I go and whatever I do, I know God is going to be with me. And as I mentioned this morning about uh, Enoch and, and, and Noah, that they walked with God. That's what this is talking about. Having that, that sense and enjoyment of God's love and God's peace. Everybody can say, well, yeah, the Lord is with me, but not in the sense of being in communion with the Lord. And even as Christians, we can have a fellowship with God or a relationship with God and and yet be hindered in being in fellowship with God. It's just like if you have children there, time after you give them a good spanking, I hope you do, after you give them a good spanking, they're still your child. The relationship is still intact. But boy, there's a breach of fellowship all of a sudden. They don't have a smile on their face and you're not their favorite person for a day or two, you know, because you did what you had to do and they didn't like it. And so you can have a relationship with God and not enjoy that sweet communion with the Lord. And and I'm really convinced that the most miserable people in all the world, it's not the drunk in the bar. They might be miserable. Some of them are, no doubt. But they're not nearly as miserable as, as a child of God that is out of the will of God because we can't live in rebellion against God and have that peace and that joy and so forth in our heart. In other words, Christians cannot be comfortable in their sin because the Holy Spirit will not allow it. He will not allow it. If we're a child of God, out of the will of God, we're going to be miserable in our sin. If you can just sin, do anything you want to do, and it doesn't bother you a bit in the world. I've heard people say that. Well, preacher, I know you say that I shouldn't do this, and I, I, I guess you're probably right because the Bible says such and such, but, you know, I, it really doesn't bother me. Well, I wouldn't brag about that. 
I wouldn't brag about the fact that it doesn't bother you because if you're saved, it's going to bother you. It's going to trouble you. It's going to rob you of blessings that you could have had, you see. Maybe we, maybe we see this best again when we think about the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, whenever Paul said, and by the way, there's a contrast that's been going on there in Galatians chapter 5. He talks about the works of the flesh. There's a big difference between works and fruit, by the way, that we won't get into. But when he speaks about the spiritual aspect, it's fruit. It's not works. You don't work up love, joy, and peace, and so forth. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Those are the things that, that the Lord produces in our life as we yield ourselves to Him, as we walk in sweet communion with Him. And can you imagine a life that is absent of those graces? Pick any one of them. It doesn't make any Just pick any one of those nine things that he mentions there and imagine trying to live your life without one of those things and the trouble that it would bring into your life as a result of it. Pick the first one, love. The last one, temperance. Maybe somebody says, boy, well, first eight, hey, I've got that. Well, not really. You're going to have them all or none of them, by the way. But the fact remains that even if you could say, I got all eight of them except self-control. That's the only one I'm lacking. Yeah, I kicked the windshield out of the car. I punched a hole in the sheetrock. I shot the gun in the ceiling. I did this and did that. Well, how's that working for you? Not really very good, you see. And we are our own worst enemy. And the only way that we can be the things that we ought to be is for us to, to yield ourselves to the control of the Holy Spirit and let Him do through us what God's will is for us. And if you're here tonight and maybe you, 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 you feel, you, you just got the spiritual humdrums and you feel like, wow, God's a, God must be a million miles away. Heaven's as brass. I can't get through to God. I can't sense His presence. I just... Just everything's dull and boring in my life. Well, guess who moved? It wasn't God. God's right where He's always been. And the question is, the question is, what will you do? If that's where you find yourself, what will you do? Because the choice is yours. God's already made His choice. He's not moving. He's going to stay right where He is. And if there's going to be any fellowship with the Lord, we have to go to Him. So, Paul says, be, 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 be. In other words, there's a duty, there's that obligation, be. This, it's like a command. It's not whether you want to, to or not, it's whether you, whether you should or not, and you certainly should. But it also implies that if that's our responsibility, that's also our possibility, and we look back through those four things that he mentions there and be calm. That can happen. Be compatible. That, that can happen. And, and be comforted, he says. That can happen. Be complete. Perfect. That can happen. Those are all possibilities if we'll just let God 
have control of our life. And, and I hope we'll all determine that we're going to live that way beginning right here, right now, tonight in our heart. And just, Lord, I've dropped the ball far too many times. I've fumbled, you know, right on the goal line. I've messed up and and I'm miserable about it. And I want that joy that I used to have. I want that peace that passeth all understanding and Lord, tonight I'm just laying, laying it all on the line and surrendering myself to you. Do whatever you want in my life and use me for your glory. Let's all stand and pray. Father, how we thank you tonight for the great possibilities and the so many times that Satan tries to convince us that these things that are so desirable in your sight, those things that are even demanded by you, for us, and so many times they just seem out of reach. It might be the result of some miserable failure in our life, and we fail that, or feel that we can never, never regain that same joy that we used to have, that we can never recover from the sin that we committed. And Lord, help us to see the possibilities here tonight in each and every life. Help us to care about those that don't care for us. Help us, Heavenly Father to be a blessing and to grow spiritually in our life that you might use us to minister to others before that day comes where we too must say farewell. In Jesus' name, amen.